What's financial success? It's creating time freedom. It's making work optional. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, a veterinarian and financial planner. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist and a money nerd. This episode is sponsored by CareCredit, the popular third-party payment provider. They are also supporters of the Veterinary Financial Summit. Visit carecredit.com to learn more. Our guest today is Jason Bulara. Jason is a board-certified veterinary surgeon and a real estate investor. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Meredith and Willie. I'm excited to talk with you all today. So let's start with from board-certified surgeon to a CEO of a real estate investment company. Why is that? It's not a sudden turn as you might think if you look at you know the LinkedIn profile. I've been working in construction since I was a teenager, so I've always been around real estate in some capacity, and my wife could attest that we don't buy houses that someone else has fixed up. We buy houses that we need to fix up, and uh, I've done work on other colleagues in the veterinary world's house. So I've always been around real estate. I've always sort of seen the value of ownership. And then sort of the CEO of this, the real estate investing company, Lark Capital, came about because ultimately we had reached kind of the end of our own renovation on our house. And I was really wanted to look for something that was maybe a little more serious on the investing side. I think in my mind, I thought it would be more passive than it has been, but I'm really on the <laughs> active side. But the beauty of it is, you know, I've, I do have two small kids. And so a lot of this the real estate stuff I can do from home. With what I'm doing, I can do from home. I can go in and have lunch with the kids. If I get an hour in between calls or looking at deals, I can go do some puzzles with my son. So it contrasted to being a surgeon, which I love and I still do, but I can't do that at home, right? And you know, I can't have my kids in the OR. There's certain limitations to the time and essentially location. And those limitations with being a surgeon are not present in what I'm doing with real estate. So I want to go back. You mentioned your LinkedIn. And one thing that I couldn't figure out is where are you right now? I think it's that you were presently the CEO. You had a mobile surgery company and also you work at a specialty hospital. I need to update that profile. <laughs> I don't work at a specialty hospital full-time anymore. Occasionally, I'll pick up shifts and things like that. Right. But I left my W-2 job almost exactly a year ago now and have focused fully on my own businesses, right? So I don't work for anyone else, which is kind of awesome in terms of that time flexibility that I was just talking about. So I apparently need to update that. But I own a mobile surgery business I have for seven years. And then Lark Capital is the real estate side of things. And that's been three years now. So if you're asking in terms of time spent, quite frankly, at this point, I do spend probably 70% on real estate and 30% on surgery. And the real reason for that is because having my own business, I've been able to develop a really efficient system. So all I do is surgery. I have really great techs on my team. They do the scheduling, they do the equipment ordering, they do sort of all of that management. And all I have to do is show up and do surgery that my techs have knocked down and you do sort of all of the stuff surrounding that process. So I can be very efficient with my time there and generate an income and still be able to you know, focus largely in terms of time spent on growing the real estate business and really working on creating that same efficient environment there as well. That's awesome. Seems like you don't have an issue with outsourcing. 
I don't. Uh, I used to. I used to very <laughs> much. I am a DIY person at heart. I mean, like I said, all these houses, our own houses that we've renovated, mostly it was me. Mostly it was me. It was my wife. When we were working on our current house was when she got pregnant with our first child, our son. So it really ended up just being me because she <laughs> couldn't have her, you know, manning the chop saw for me anymore, helping me carry lumber around. It was really me. And it's definitely been a big shift in terms of, you know, that DIY mindset to more of a, I guess, CEO mentality. I will say that if someone's looking for a book to help with this transition, Who Not How was kind of life-changing for me. The title's pretty obvious as to what it's about. But despite that, it's well worth the read if you're looking at a way to try to create you know, efficiency and build a team around you. You've got to empower people to do what they do well and then just let them do it. I mean, that's ultimately the key behind it. And I think as veterinarians, that's a hard thing for us to do. So it's probably a mindset shift that could benefit the community as a whole. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah, and that seems to be a recurring theme on the podcast is talking about delegation. And, and I hadn't heard of that book. So thanks for sharing that. I'll have to look that up. And with real estate, so certainly time flexibility, location flexibility being certainly huge. So for veterinarians who are interested in getting into real estate, where along the financial journey might real estate be a good fit? I honestly believe the beginning. I think there's lots of different asset classes that you can invest in, right? And what most of us know about, I don't even want to use the word learn about because I don't think we actually learn about investing in stocks. We just do it because that's what's sort of presented in front of us. So a big challenge is, you know, people don't have financial literacy. They don't know how to manage their money. They've been in school for at least eight years, you know, between college and vet school. And if they've specialized or done an internship or whatever, like, you, in theory, might have spent 12 plus years just training to be whatever specialist you are. And you're like, when are you going to fit business classes or financial literacy classes in there? So in terms of when to fit real estate in the beginning, because I mean, frankly, in terms of any type of investing, the strongest tool you have is time. So if you wait and you say, oh, I'm going to do whatever else. And then in 10 years, I'm going to start investing. Well, you missed 10 years of growth within your portfolio. So whether that's real estate or stocks or whatever it is, you've missed that time. And you're probably going to find a very common theme here. But to me, time is by far the most valuable resource that we have in reference to almost anything. So I think the when to get started with it is as soon as you can. The first decision to make is, am I going to be active or passive? That's really where you need to start that journey. And then once you decide that, then you should try and get started as soon as possible. You made a statement there that I just got like, it creeped on me because again, we always go back to talking about the Deaf Free Vets group, which is a pretty big group of vets and vet students. And one thing we commonly see is, you know, people not saving for retirement at all. And frankly, most of them are focused on paying their student debt, but Man, I think there's so much lost time if you don't actually also consider, you know, maybe putting $100 a month into a retirement account. That's a lot of lost time in investing. Yeah. And I say this because I made this mistake. Like I did not start doing all of this stuff until realistically at a serious level, I started investing five, eight years ago and I'm 48. So I waited a long time. Like I finished my residency when I was 33. 
So I made some money. I'm a surgeon. Like I made some money in that time. I invested on a small scale, right? I was doing it within, you know, the houses that I was sort of forcing the appreciation. But we look back in time, I finished my residency in 2008. Do you know what would have been a great time for me to start in real estate? 2010. Yeah, like I would be done working. I would be set right now, but I didn't know. And that's why I get so passionate about it is people just don't know and they don't know that they don't know. And, and it's scary. And we're not taught to talk about money, right? I mean, I went through all of vet school, my internship, and pretty much my entire residency and never really had to talk about money with a client. It's like this taboo thing. And that's just within the job I was doing, let alone in my own life. It was like, I didn't know what to do with the money that I found. And I now find I get really passionate like talking to my residents because they're going to go from making a very small salary or you know enough to survive on to making more money than they've probably ever had before. And if they would just live like their residents for two or three more years and get all of that additional income invested, they'll be set for life. Like You can then use time to your advantage and you can do it in a very quick time. I feel like I'm always playing catch up. I mean, and that's why I feel so passionate about like start this right away. Because again, if I had started 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like I would be in an entirely different position financially, but I didn't know. And I just think most of us don't. Yeah, I evaluate contracts and, you know, I see contracts from recent specialists and it's crazy. They go from, let's say, 50,000 to 200 in a month. You know, it's like, oh, I finished yep, now right. I'm making 200 grand. That's four times what you were making before. And like you mentioned, you know, if you actually keep living like a resident and save that 100K or more for three, four years, you are way advanced. Yeah. I mean, it's just the power of time. And it's like I have the same thing. I have my residents have asked me to look at their contracts to help them negotiate because now they see me as someone who knows these things. <laughs> I'm like, I know most of it by making the mistakes. I certainly don't consider myself like some sort of financial expert from training. I, I feel I've learned it, you know, sort of as life experiences. But it's just one of those things that you need to use that time to your advantage. And like, when we look at real estate, right? If you look at people who want to invest passively, if you look at it from a passive investment in a real estate syndication, which is what I do, general rule of thumb is you'll double your money every five years. Okay. So think about what that means if you're a resident or anyone like a specialist or someone, even a general practitioner coming out of school and they're making way more money than they were before. So imagine you are able to take that extra hundred thousand and put it into a real estate syndication. And you do that for three years, just your first three years out, right? You put all of the new house, the new car, the pool, you put all of that on the back burner for a second. You put that in. Now that money is doubling every five years. So I'll let people do the math themselves. But what that looks like in 10 years is millions of dollars, right? So what people don't realize is that sort of power of time. Obviously, I feel strongly. <laughs> well, you know, we love talking about investment here, but you have mentioned syndications quite a few times. And from your company, I saw that you focus on multifamily syndications. What exactly is that? Yeah, it's a great question. The syndication, I think, is something that a lot of us don't learn about finances and things like that. But even if you do, it's something that probably a lot of people are not familiar with. But in a nutshell, a syndication means pooling resources to purchase an asset that's bigger than perhaps a single person could purchase on their own. That's a very broad definition of it. When it comes to you know real estate, that's what I do. I use that term in real estate. But you could look at it if you're a sports fan. Most sports teams get bought by a syndication. They're not bought by 
one single person. It's a group of people. And within a syndication, there's going to be essentially two sides of the coin. There are the operating partners in real estate. We often refer to that as general partner or sponsor. Those are the people that do the work, right? They find the deals, they finance the deals, they manage the deals after it's closed, all of that stuff. The flip side is the limited partners or the investors. Those people are investing their hard-earned money, so it's not that they didn't do any work, they just did it in another space, and then they invest their hard-earned money and get a return based on the performance of those assets. So the nice thing about you know a real estate syndication situation in terms of your returns is you get returns a couple of different ways. There's potential for cash flow, there's appreciation within the asset, and then a big thing is the tax benefits of real estate. So when you're invested, even as a limited partner, you still get to participate in the tax benefits of a real estate investment. So contrast to like a, the stock market or a REIT, where REITs are invested in real estate, but you're not going to get those tax benefits and things like that out of that. You're also never going to talk to whoever the REIT manager is. Whereas if you invest in one of my deals, you'll have my phone number. So it's a very different feel outside of the fact that it's, you know, it's real estate. Yeah. And so when you're deciding who to work with, so say someone listens to this podcast and they say, that's awesome. I'm really interested in this. And then they're looking for someone to work with on a real estate deal. How can people know who to trust and like what questions should they be asking? That's a fantastic question because I do think that's a resource that's missing. Without getting fairly involved into the space on an active level or having been passive for a while, it can be hard. It can be hard to know who to trust. It's not like going to be a Google review that you can go look and see who's a great syndicator I should work with. So the best thing you can do probably is referrals, right? So you can find someone who's done it before in your network and see if they've had a good experience, they've liked the operator, and see if that's something that they might be able to introduce you. It's important to know that with these syndications, they are governed by the SEC. So there's a lot of legal regulations behind it. And typically, there are two types of capital raising where you're taking investors in two different ways. There are more than two, but the generally the most common two are either a 506B raise, it's called, or a 506C raise. These are all within Regulation D of the SEC securities. There's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo behind it. But in a nutshell, there's 506B and 506C. So in terms of getting invested in one of these deals, if you are accredited, which if people listening don't know what that means, there's sort of two benchmarks that are fairly easy to understand. One of them is income-based. So if you make 200000 a year as a single person or 300000 a year as a married couple, you are considered accredited. Or if you have a net worth of a million dollars plus, not including your primary residence. So those are the two common ones. There are other ways to get accredited. There, there either is a test or a test coming so that someone could become accredited by taking the test. It's interesting because these rules, just because you make a lot of money doesn't mean you know anything about finances. <laughs> so the rules are, are not exactly like foolproof. But I think what the SEC looks at it as, if you make that much money, you could afford to lose a little bit of money. I really think that's what those rules are based on. So back to the two types of ways to find this. With a 506B raise, it cannot be advertised. Okay, so you're not allowed to market it at all. You can't put it on your social media. You can't do anything to sort of put it out there to the general public. 
you have to have a pre-existing relationship with that sponsor. So you already have to know them, you have to be within their network, and then you could invest with them if you're unaccredited. If you are interested in investing and you're not accredited, what you should do is start going and making connections with sponsors or general partners so that you have that pre-existing relationship the next time they have a deal, right? I know the second part of this is what should you ask. The flip side there is that 506C capital raise, which it can be marketed. I could put it on my social media. I could make TV commercials if I wanted to. You can market it however you want, but everyone who invests in that has to be accredited. Mm -hmm. So those are the main differences between the two types. So I don't have to know them in advance, but they do have to be accredited to be in the deal. So again, the idea being that you have some basic understanding of how finances work and the risks of investing and all of that. In terms of the right questions to ask, it's challenging. Most of the time, people answer that question with track record. That's usually like the first thing that people say about it. And I think that that's valid. However, over the last few years, the market has helped a lot of people's track records look really good just because of the market, right? Like it's important. It's just you have to look at that track record in reference to time frame, right? If you have a good track record and you've been in the business since 2000, I would trust that track record. If you have a good track record and you started in syndication in 2018, 2019, you have to look at it with a grain of salt because the market has been so good. The next things you're going to look into is, do I share common values with that person, right? Essentially, people look at it from a know, like, and trust standpoint. So if you don't know them, get to know them. Lots of people have social media profiles. There's fairly easy ways to kind of find out at least surface level what people are about and see if you resonate with their personality. But then you have to just start talking to them and you have to start, you know, sort of asking these questions. You can ask about track record, you can ask about what your goals are, what do you see coming out of this, what are your values. And then at the end of the day, it is somewhat a leap of faith if you don't have a reference. You know, if you interview a number of sponsors, you could ask those sponsors about the other sponsors. You might get some honest answers that way. But it's an interesting question because, like, how many people contribute money to their 401k or they contribute money to an IRA or they put money in a mutual fund? Do you ever go talk to the people running those? Like, no. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who ran my 401k, but I put money into it. Like, but then when it comes to these, it's for whatever reason, people look at these as scarier. And I think they're way safer. Like the example I like to use is the whole GameStop thing that happened because of Reddit. Do you know how people lost a lot of money on that? Like the SEC didn't tell them they couldn't do that, but they might tell them they couldn't have invested in a real estate deal. So it's just some of the rules I think are a little bit misguided. So you just ultimately just have to do your research and understand what you're looking at. Let me correct you on that. Some people don't even know what company holds their 401k and some people don't even know what funds they're investing on. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there is a complete lack of knowledge. I mean, again, these are mistakes that I've made. I'm not trying to call anyone out. Let me tell you. So the first time I opened an IRA, it was I don't know, maybe two, three years after I got out of my residency. So here I am having some money again that I didn't know what to do with. So I go to get my taxes done by a CPA and she asked me if I had an IRA. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And she was like, you can contribute up to this amount and it's a direct tax reduction. And I was like, okay, do that. So I did that. 
for two years, because you can't, in theory, if you have a 401k, like there's rules around it. So I put in my, I think it was like 5,000 a year. So I put it in for two years. 10 years later, I realized that that money never got invested in anything. It was just still $10,000 just sitting there. And so people don't know. Like, I didn't know. You don't know these things. Like, she told me putting it in an IRA was a good idea. (laughs) She didn't tell me I had to invest it in that IRA. I didn't know. Anything I had seen otherwise, like a 401k, I think in my residency, we had a 403b. Like, I didn't do anything to invest those funds. Someone else did it. I paid them a bunch of money to do it, but someone else did it. So it's just so many people don't know, and you have to have some knowledge of your finances and how they work. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, Willie, you're right. A lot of people don't have any idea where their 401k is at all, so... So Jason, can you tell us about the new fund that you've started? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So a fund is like a syndication with diversification is probably the easiest way again to like sort of explain that in a nutshell. So within a fund, people are investing in that fund and then it's the fund's job to go out and find the investments, which assets to invest in. It's like a mutual fund. It's like anything you know you might think of in the stock market where you're putting your money into that fund and then the fund managers are figuring out where to invest it. Within my fund, we are focused on multifamily real estate, which is what we were talking about, but also small businesses. So I'll tell you the reason I did that is because in my own portfolio, especially recently with the challenges that have come in the real estate market, cash flow on the real estate side is reduced. As a passive investor, cash flow is reduced over what it was a couple of years ago. Doesn't mean that there's no appreciation. It doesn't mean that there's no tax benefits. It doesn't mean you might not still get very good returns, but the cash flow amounts that you're getting along the way are lower. And so I started looking at what I wanted to do for my family. How are we going to, you know, sort of balance that out? And I started looking at purchasing businesses. And so there are certain, you know, they are often referred to as like boring businesses, like a laundromat, car wash, nail salon, things like that, that like you wouldn't think of as, oh, I really want to own one of those. Until you see their financials and you see what the cash flow on those types of businesses are, that it's phenomenal. And so my idea for myself was, all right, well, I'll buy a few of those and that will help the cash flow. And then it'll go in the portfolio. And then I was like, well, maybe I can do that with my investors. Like maybe I can make that a thing to offer investors. And so again, it's all governed by the SEC. So I went to my SEC attorney and I was like, can I do this? (laughs) Am I going to go to jail if I build a fund this way? And turns out you can, but the SEC governs what the ratios are. So 20% of the equity from within the fund can go into small businesses. The rest of it has to be real estate. The nice thing about that is that if we take what a sort of baseline real estate deal looks like, And then we layer on those cash flows, it increases those returns fairly substantially. So you're getting cash flow along the way, which is great. Everybody likes that. But then the overall return of that fund becomes substantially increased. Like you go from, like I said, doubling the amount you put in in five years as a rough guide to potentially tripling or more in those five years. So it's a really nice return profile. But I've always wanted to have some level of impact. My podcast is called the Know Your Why podcast, and I have always had in my mind I would eventually have a Know Your Why charitable foundation. And so when I started this fund, I wanted there to be an impact component. And so as part of the fund on the back end, once investors are paid, I'm donating 25% of the profits from the fund to Not One More Vet. 
So my dream is every investor in this fund is in the veterinary community. And then we also get to help people on the back end by donating to Not One More Vet. So to me, it's a, a way to give back and help what I see as a bit of a struggling industry right now. So now that you mentioned your podcast, what exactly is Know Your Why? When I started this journey into real estate seriously a few years back, I listened to a lot of podcasts, got a lot of education that way, read a lot of books. And one of the things that kept coming up was, in order to be successful, you need to know your why. And the, the why means, you know, kind of what's the driver behind that success? What's the thing that'll keep you going when the days are hard? And at that time, I had a one-year-old son and it had changed my life. And so my life went from very much focusing on work, 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 how much money can I make, that kind of thing, to I want more time with my family, like I want to be home. And so as I listened to those podcasts and I read the books and all of that, what always resonated to me was people would talk about their why. That was what always was the most interesting part of the story to me when I would listen to these. Like, there's only so much when it comes to the nuts and bolts of real estate. Like, you can only talk about, you know, cash flow, NOI, like syndication. You can only talk about those things for so long. And you would have the same people on different podcasts talking through their process. And I just always really got a, I don't know, motivation out of hearing people that had a, a strong story attached to their success. And so that's what I built my podcast around. So when people ask me what the podcast is, I say, well, it's real estate inspired, but really it's about the mindset behind success. And we've had a lot of real estate investors on there, but I've also had a lot of business and life coaches. I've had fitness professionals. I've had veterinarians on there and we'll be having more because I think a big part of what I want to do with the fund is raise awareness as to why we have an organization called Not One More Vet. And I think that when I talk to people outside of our industry about the fund and that I'm doing that and why, they're blown away. They have no idea. They think we play with puppies and kittens all day. So it's just something that I think, you know, kind of full circle, we can do a lot of good in, in a lot of different ways. And so I'll use my podcast as a platform to help spread that message as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think we have mentioned this book in this podcast, but a lot of the things that you mentioned just reminded me of Bill Perkins' Die With Zero. Not sure if you have read that book, but... I haven't read that one. No. Yeah. It talks about people accumulating wealth, not knowing for what. You know, know your why. Right. It's like, why are you accumulating all this wealth? Like, the plan is to end up with zero dollars. Like, yeah, you did great. Yes, exactly. Make sure my family's taken care of. But the reason to make more money is to help more people. Yeah. That's it. Like, that's the reason why it's important to me. And some people are going to hate that I say this, but <laughs> there's a lot of pet rescues right? Like everybody starts a rescue, mm -hmm. but there's no vet rescues, right? There's, there's not one more vet. That's an organization. But like the reality is that you need those vets to help all of those pets and all of these pet rescue organizations then expect vets to help them for free or for very little money. And so you're sort of devaluing the services that are being provided with a good intention. But what it's doing is it's hurting the vets and burning them out and having them leave the industry. So I'm not saying don't have pet rescues, but like I think we're focusing on maybe the wrong thing. Like we need to actually have vets comfortable and feel good about what they're doing, get compensated appropriately, and then they'll stay in the field and more people will stay in the field. Like we have between retirements and people leaving the industry, there aren't enough graduates coming this year to fill the spots. So the, the staffing for all these hospitals is only going to get worse and we're not getting less pets. So <laughs> it's like we need to start looking at this from a different angle.
Yeah, agreed. And we had a conversation about that before. And unfortunately, there aren't any easy answers. There's less staffing and arguably more pets to see and not a clear answer for what to do. And there's a lot of opportunity out there. There's a lot more options and more opportunity than I think there used to be in some ways. But I also think the level of burnout and the level of stress in the field has also increased at the same time that those opportunities have come up. Yeah. And I think some of it just comes from within. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a culture within veterinary medicine that is probably detrimental to vets and their staff. Mm -hmm. Like, we're bad people if we don't help as many pets as we possibly can every minute of every day. And it's just like, you can't keep that up. Like, it's impossible to keep that up forever. And you can see it in the ways that the corporations have been able to take advantage of those opportunities in the sense that. Vets work, 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 work. The practice owners work, 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 work until they can't do it anymore. And then they'll just sell for whatever because they need to get out from under it because it's, it's literally killing them. And so the corporations that are buying up these practices are benefiting from that because they're able to buy them for probably less than their actual value. This practice owner doesn't have the bandwidth anymore to take the six months that it would take to increase the valuation and actually make themselves a more comfortable retirement. So it's within the industry, but there's also you know, sort of pressure from expectations from clients and things like that. It's got to be a reset. I don't think we're going to like not have vets anymore, but it's definitely a, a real challenge. Mm-hmm. I love it that it's coming from a surgeon because during my internship, I expected the surgeon to be on call 24-7. Like, I need you to repair this. Please come in. <laughs> yep. That's a big part of why I left my W-2. Doing on call, like the expectation that I had to mm-hmm. come in whenever just didn't fit anymore with being there for my kids because let alone like anybody who has kids probably knows you don't get as much sleep when you have kids that's fine but like (laughs) if I have to get up in the middle of the night after two hours of sleep go in you know for a surgery for a few hours and then come back and maybe sleep another hour or two I'm not going to be my best I'm not going to be the best father the best husband like there's no way I can do that if you're younger and single like sure do whatever you want to do just use it wisely, right? Like work all you want to work, especially in the beginning, and then get your money invested so that when you're my age and you don't want to do that anymore, like you have something in place that allows you to not do that anymore. Like there needs to be an exit strategy and most of us don't have it. I I told you like my retirement plan when I was 40 was not retire. Literally that was (laughs) it. I was like, I like working. I won't retire. If someone asked me, that was my retirement plan. It's so dumb. Like, I'm embarrassed to say that. I look back and I'm just like, I could have taken advantage of a lot, but I didn't know. I just didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so have you found that the move to mobile surgery and being a traveling surgeon has worked better for you? I mean, it allows me to not be on call. I think that's honestly like the best part of it. It also allows me to be in control of my time. So I don't have to ask someone if I want a vacation. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) In fact, it's been so nice that like my son's starting school in the fall. And I was like, oh, let's go to this thing in September. And my wife's like, well, we can't because he's starting school. And so we haven't had to think about that stuff for a little while. I'm like, oh, I guess I can't just get up and go, you know, with the family whenever we want, but I can make sure I take him to school. Mm -hmm. I can make sure I'm there when he gets home if I want to. Like, you know, I I like work. Like I like feeling a sense of accomplishment. I like feeling a sense of growth. It's not that. Like, let me tell you, I really like sending my investors their distributions. Like there's some super (laughs) cool things about this, but I like fixing animals. Like 
I got a text last night at like 9pm, hey, we have this fracture, when can you come in? Awesome, we'll be there on Saturday. It's not that I don't like working, it's not that I don't even mind, like, some level of on-call, but I can say no, right? Like, I never felt like I could say no when I worked for someone else and I was on-call, right? The ER doctors call you in the middle of the night and they're in a bad position, right? They think it needs to go to surgery. I might think it doesn't, <laughs> you know, that it can wait till the next morning. It's like, okay, who's right? Like, it just becomes this challenging situation for all. I mean, I at times got resentful because they wouldn't mind calling in the middle of the night. I'd come in, do a surgery, but then I have to work the next day still. But they get to go home because they were working the overnight shift. And it's just like, you just start to see these things and it is what it is, but it just, it can create tension across, you know, you mentioned it, Willie, like you just expected you call the surgeon and they would come in because that's what we do. But it's like, at some point that gets increasingly hard as you have other responsibilities in life and you get older. So when I was a resident, fine. I would not sleep for a night, work the next day. Like, it didn't matter, but I just can't do it anymore. So maybe I'm just too old. But it's a source of stress and it comes in all forms within the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that autonomy and that freedom with being mobile and being able to make your own schedule. And so what about financially? What does financial freedom mean to you? It means being able to spend time with my family whenever I want. There's no number to it. Listen, I grew up poor. I could be poor again. It doesn't matter to me. Like, I don't care about things. I care about experiences. So what is most important to me is that, you know, my family will be taken care of when I'm gone and we can do things that we want to do. And beyond that, let's create as much impact as we can. So I know that the question is what's, <laughs> what's financial success? It's creating time freedom. It's making work optional. Mm -hmm. I think it is really, because I'll never stop working. I like it. I like what I do. I like doing surgery. But I'm not going to do it so long that like my back hurts all the time and I can't because I mean, doing surgery is fairly physical. And so things like that happen. It's like an aging athlete. At some point, like your body can't do what it could do before. I'm not going to be in the position where I can't play on the floor with my kids because my job makes everything else hurt too much. That's a great answer. So two things. You know, if I were to look up on how to get on your fund or even the syndication as well, what is like a minimum buy-in and how can people get in touch with you to maybe invest with you? Yeah. So getting in touch with me is easy. It's jason at larkcapital.com or you can go to our website, which is larkcapital.com. You can find me on Instagram or LinkedIn or all the places. Getting in touch with me is, is fairly pretty easy. I'm pretty sure my phone number is in a lot of those places too, but reach out <laughs> however. If you're looking for information, the website has it. We're trying to create as much, you know, sort of educational content behind it. If you're interested in investing, there's sort of a schedule, or even if you just have questions, there's a schedule a call button on all of those places as well. As far as, you know, sort of minimum investments for our fund, it's 50,000, which I know is a big amount of money for a lot of people. But if you contrast that to say, crowdfunding, right? A lot of people will look at crowdfunding as a way to get involved in real estate without having to put a lot of money in, okay? But what you're going to get in a return isn't going to be substantial, right? Like you have to, I think, just be committed to it. And so I think that 50,000 threshold sort of makes that a good jumping off point for a reasonable level of commitment. Within the fund, we have multiple investor classes that are based on the amount invested. So there's like tiers. However, it's a $10 million fund. The first $2 million that comes in, they all get treated as the highest class, regardless of amount invested. So doing that 
one, to generate interest, but two, just to kind of show people like that trust in the beginning. Because once it starts running and I'm sending people checks monthly, like it's not going to be hard to find investors anymore. Like then people are going to jump on it and want to be a part of it. And I don't think it'll be hard to find investors anyway. But if I can do something that encourages veterinarians to be involved, to me, that's again, another exciting part of it. Like I never, I never got into syndication because I thought it would be exciting to make already wealthy people more wealthy. Like they know how to do it. They don't need me to do that. Like, I'm happy if they want to invest with me, great. But like, what is more important is teaching people that don't know how to, you know, grow their wealth or manage their finances, things like that, what options are available for them. And again, if it's not my fund, you know, you want me to introduce you to someone else, I'm happy to. All right. Excellent. And so, Jason, that brings us to our last question. What is your best advice for our listeners? I think we touched on a little bit, but I guess I'll two-part this answer if I can, but you need to get started. You need to use that time to your advantage. The two parts means, one, you need the knowledge. So you need to start doing some level of self-research, whether that's with books, podcasts, things like that. You need to reach out and talk to people like me, you guys, anybody, like someone who's already sort of getting into it and taking a responsibility with their finances. Like I said, I've probably made the mistake. I've given you some examples there. I've probably made the mistake. So, you know, if, if someone's embarrassed to talk about it, hit me up because I'm pretty sure I already did it. It just takes the knowledge to turn it around. So the real nutshell answer to that question is get started and use time to your advantage, right? Because it, it doesn't get easier. There's a kind of one of the real estate cliches is um, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. It's just essentially like a, you know, play on time being so important. All right. Excellent advice. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for everything. This is great. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's been awesome. Your questions are great. I love it. It's very well thought out. <laughs> Fun things to talk about. All right. Thanks, Jason. If you liked this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.